It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Ben. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Kate Forbes and religion in politics, and you ask Ben your polling questions. So on today's episode, we have a special guest joining us in a bit, Tim Farron, the former Lib Dem leader. He's currently the party's environment spokesperson and MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale. He went through quite a similar experience to what Kate Forbes, the SNP MSP running to succeed Nicola Sturgeon is at the moment, having to answer questions about how he feels as a Christian, about gay rights and other societal issues. But before we speak to him, Ben, I wanted to ask you a bit about how the public responds to politicians who say, you know, these kind of things about society. Let's go through some of the things that Forbes has said recently. She said she would not have voted for the SNP's equal marriage legislation had she been a politician at the time. She said having children and sex outside marriage was wrong, according to my faith. And she's also voiced her opposition to gender self-ID. Tim Farron, I'm sure you'll remember in the lead up to the 2017 general election when he was Lib Dem leader, was asked repeatedly about whether he thought that gay sex was sinful. How did the public respond to his answers at the time? Do you remember? Yeah, it's a while ago. I remember the 2017 campaign, how intense it was for all of us covering it. No, I do remember a lot of Lib Dem activists saying it hurt their base, saying it got mentioned, saying that it really made people feel a bit uncomfortable because they wanted to talk about Brexit. Because you, you remember 2017, this was the election in which the Tories and Labour were pretty content to go ahead with Brexit and the Lib Dems thought they could strike through and do something else. There were fears amongst some strategists and activists that actually the obsession with Farron and gay sex would almost just collapse their entire campaign to that one issue. And so they would really lose all of their seats. They would lose North Norfolk. They would lose wherever else they had seats at the time. No, what the public thought about it, which is quite interesting, is that um, generally speaking, the public like politicians to stick to their personal views, even if the religious views may not be in line with your own. A poll, I think, after the election asked people, what would you prefer a politician to do when it comes to their Christian faith, their attitude to certain morals and issues such as this? And I, th- I think if I remember rightly, it was around about 20% of Britons say you should stick to the party line on certain things. If you're pro-gay marriage, if you're pro-whatever, you should stick to that. And then around 40-something percent said that you should actually stick to your own personal religious views. And then 30% or so said they don't really know. It's one of those issues that I think 
to tell you the truth, I thought the activists and the strategists were dramatizing things a bit. I don't think it mattered as much as they thought. I do wonder if it will matter as much regarding Kate Forbes. It will matter with the rank and file membership, I think, but I'm not sure if it will matter among the wider public. I think, again, issues such as these dressed up as personal religious views, I don't think they motivate or turn off as many as some think, whether for good or ill. Yes, I remember at the time of the 2017 election, I also heard that frustration among Lib Dems that I was speaking to about their campaign being dominated by this stuff. But I think the fear was more that it would affect the morale of activists, maybe the younger, more left-wing people who they needed on the ground to get the vote out. And I wonder if there'll be a similar issue for the SNP in terms of putting off younger members of the base. And you've been looking into the SNP membership recently, haven't you? Can you tell us a bit about their makeup and whether or not you think they could swallow Kate Forbes? So here's what you need to know about the SNP's membership is the last time they had a leadership election where the rank and file had a say was that when they were 4,000 person strong. That's not much. That's quite small. That's smaller than a party conference, okay? Now they're 100,000. Let's not beat around the bush. After the 2014 independence referendum, where yes, got 45%, their membership skyrocketed. I have friends who, to tell you the truth, weren't exactly enthusiastic yes supporters, but actually joined the SNP. To tell you the truth, in Scotland, it did feel a bit like the way we look at the election of Jeremy Corbyn in Labour, how it motivated a certain section of the public to, to go out and get involved in politics in a sort of activist-led way. And that's what happened after 2014. A lot of people joined the SNP because it was their vehicle for, as the SNP's own billboards put it, stronger for Scotland. I think around 2014-15, they had well over 100,000 members. Now it's, the, a few years ago, it declined to 120. Now I think it's closer to 100,000. They've drifted off a little bit owing to just the general state of things. It's worth bearing in mind, though, you, what the SNP is in membership terms, it, although, of course, it's not the only pro-independence party, it is a party that is trying to drag in all corners of the pro-independence Scottish population. And as a consequence, you're going to get quite diverse views. It's worth remembering, of course, that around about three in 10 SNP voters, three in 10 2015 SNP voters voted leave in the 2016 referendum. It's not hard to imagine a decent chunk of the SNP membership. They may not fit the bill on Twitter, they may not act the stereotype, but they may actually be quite socially conservative. Nevertheless, most of them, however, it seems are not. There is huge enthusiasm about SNP members, according to one survey, academic survey, I don't know the source, I'm sorry to say, were just as enthusiastic for gay marriage, for same-sex marriage, as members of the Labour Party. So that's a good yardstick for you. This is what Kate Forbes is up against. She's up against a membership who might be more diverse than, say, your Labour Party, your Green Party, your Lib Dems, might have more social conservative members, which perhaps emboldens her, but I think she is still quite obviously a minority in that party when it comes to views like that. Right. OK. And it, do we have any suggestion of how the sort of general Scottish voting population feel about who could succeed Nicola Sturgeon and who they'd like to well, see? Yeah, it's one of those things. Don't have a clue. This is the thing with Nicola Sturgeon and in last week's podcast, which I'm sorry to say I missed because I was ill as a dog last week. No, the thing with Nicola Sturgeon is she sucked in every single ounce of coverage. Very few people could compete with her on media attention, 
on favorability on anything of the sort. Ruth Davidson once came close and Anna Sar was starting to come close, but it's all relative, really. No, the thing with Sturgeon is she was the domineering personality. It's, I don't want to make the, you know, the woman comparisons because he- heaven forbid they're both women, but it was a bit like Margaret Thatcher, you know, you, you, a vacuum now exists. Who really is going to see it? Who's going to be our safe pair of hands, John Major? There isn't really one because the candidates to succeed her isn't really regarded well because voters regard his handling of the NHS, the Scottish NHS, poorly. Kate Forbes actually had the most favourability out of all candidates, but that was because she was known more for, well, safe pair of hands when it comes to finance as opposed to the more controversial statement she's now giving. This is the thing. Name recognition is low for both of them. They are starting from a low base, which Nicola Sturgeon did not start from in 2014. In 2014, you knew more than one key figure of the pro-independence section of Scotland. You knew Alex Salmond really well. A lot of Scots really liked him. He was more divisive than Nicola Sturgeon. A good half the country really hated him. Half actually liked, were far cry from that now. Alex Salmond commands the approval, the favourability of just 10%. But Nicola Sturgeon, when in 2014, when she was waiting in the wings in 2014, she still had some decent approval. We don't have a successor, as yet declared, with any iota of a figure like that. And this is going to be troublesome. This is going to be a challenge because it opens up a void in Scottish politics. That means, what does it mean for the SNP? What does it mean for the comeback of the Labour Party? What does it mean for the state of Scottish politics going forward? I think things could get a little bit more competitive, but I I would say that's going on what happens in Westminster as well. Great. Thanks, Ben. That's all really useful context. And I will move on to the interview with Tim Farron now. I asked him what he thought Kate Forbes's prospects were, given his own experience, and what might be going through her head while she's doing some of these interviews. I also tried to challenge him on whether it is compatible to have a leader or a potential leader of a party of voters that you've just been talking about, Ben, many of whom are progressive and have certain views of society that might clash with what politicians like Tim Farron and Kate Forbes's faith is telling them. Here's what he had to say. Now, Tim, the reason we've invited you on today is because we thought you could give us an insight into what's happening with Kate Forbes's campaign to succeed Nicola Sturgeon. Having looked like the strong frontrunner, her support seems to be falling away the more questions she answers about how her Christian faith shapes her views on society. You must be having some flashbacks, Tim, because something similar happened to you in the lead up to the 2017 general election when you were asked about your personal beliefs about gay sex and your voting record on same-sex marriage and Equality Act regulations. And you actually stood down after that election, despite the Lib Dems increasing the number of MPs, saying you'd felt torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. And you probably don't remember, but we actually spoke at that time. And when I interviewed you, you said, when a firmly left of centre liberal turns out to be an evangelical Christian, that is surprising. And it shouldn't be. Looking back on your experience and also watching the sort of Forbes case play out, does it suggest to you that those two things are incompatible these days? No. I mean, first of all, I obviously have no insight into how Kate's campaign is going. What I would say mm. is that she has done something that I didn't do, which she's been really straightforward. I was evasive. And because you know how the current Western culture reacts to those kind of things. But I, I think that a proper understanding of Christianity means that you're going to be countercultural to all belief systems, to the right, to the left, to the centre, to liberals, to conservatives. Um, I think that it's, it's wrong-headed to think that it's only the case that people who are 
right of centre can get away with wearing their faith. But I think that you know we we have a a moment now where we can examine how liberal and tolerant and committed to diversity society we really are, because most people have a faith, most people have a faith, and yet I think the default position in society appears to be that we'll tolerate you having an, a faith, but it's an eccentric thing that we'll assume that you have no faith, which is quite an assumption. That's not a neutral thing. It's a, it is a loaded assumption. We'll assume that you don't have a faith. If you do, we'll tolerate you, patronize you, and treat you as eccentric. At least, if it's a cultural faith that you have, that's kind of fine, but a bit weird. If you actually allow your faith to affect your worldview, we're not having that. That's dangerous. That's strange. That's unacceptable. I'm just really, I think, paraphrasing what the kind of some of the media and societal approach to what Kate has gone through has been. And I want to say it's astonishingly illiberal and intellectually inconsistent. But how practical is it? You know, I mean, how can a leader or a prospective leader with these views, which makes some in society feel that they're being cast as sinful, lead a party in a country mm. that is more progressive than they are on the topics of sex, reproduction, gay rights? I mean, the SNP membership are quite left-wing and liberal, as are many of the party's MPs and MSPs. And there will be some similarities to the makeup of the Lib Dems in terms of those political values. So how, how practical is it to have a leader or a potential leader expressing those views that are anathema to how they see society? Well, so the question is, are we people of, who are tolerant of faith? Uh, that's simply it. And if you're only tolerant of a faith that has a kind of you know, cultural badge to it. You know, you put a Christmas tree up, you go to church occasionally, you, you know, belong to another faith that is part of your culture. If that's the only sort of religion we're all right with, then we're not liberal and we're not tolerant and we're not committed to diversity. And, and so th the simple fact is, I'll go back to the idea that this assumption that secularism equals neutrality, it really blinking doesn't. There is no neutrality. And real liberals need to understand that a genuinely liberal, pluralistic society does not mean us all signing up to the same worldview. Quite the opposite. It means us genuinely seeking to be curious in understanding what other people's motives are and why they think the things they do, and defending the rights of others to believe those things. Now, when it comes to her you know, practical application as a legislator, she's absolutely right to be held to account for those things. I think I'm you know, in a very similar theological place to Kate. I did vote for equal marriage in the House of Commons. And I think that, for, for example, and I, yeah, I do wrestle with these sort of things, the idea that only people whose worldview is not religious are allowed to bring that worldview into the room is silly intellectually silly and really quite illiberal. I mean, for instance, I passionately believe that it is not my role to legislate to make people who are not Christians live as though they were. What's the point in that? It's illiberal. And it's also, I think, not scriptural. I think we're told not to, to do that. Um, that's my take on those things. But I think we have to remember, again, that there isn't any neutrality in the public square. We act as though they do. Those who would call themselves secularists, I mean, I believe in a secular society in the sense that I believe in the separation of uh, religion and state, church and state. I'm a disestablisher, for example. But I think that, that to be a secularist and to believe that faith has got to be scrubbed out of the public square, that is not a neutral standpoint. That's a partial standpoint. And a real liberal will recognise that there is no neutrality. And we have to carefully, kindly, sometimes awkwardly, compete for space and tolerate each other's 
you know, foibles and weirdness. That's that's what a real liberal society looks like, not some, you know, anodyne mush. Well, having been through something similar to Forbes, I wonder how you think she will be feeling at the moment. You actually spoke to her for your book, A Mucky Business, Why Christians Should Get Involved in Politics. Did you see her as a rising star then? And were you apprehensive about her chances because of her faith, because of your experience of what had happened to you? Well, I'm I'm a passionate supporter of the United Kingdom remaining together. So in one sense, I want the SNP to pick its weakest leader. Isn't that a terrible thing to say? <laughs> and that is not Kate Forbes. If you look at it, one of the one of the really interesting things here is that uh, I think, and I'm, no, no offence to other candidates in the race, she's head and shoulders above them, head and shoulders in terms of competence. Just look at how she's managed the department she has over recent times and look at how her opponents have managed the departments they've been in charge of. If you're looking at basic competence and ability to convince and to lead, she is easily the best candidate, easily, right? And I say that as somebody who wants the SNP to fail. I don't mean that ungently. I just want the union to stay together. <laughs> but the odd thing is, as things stand, the SNP could pick somebody who is a far distant second in terms of competence just because they can't do liberalism properly. What a strange situation. I want to go back to something that you said earlier in the, in the interview about her being sort of straightforward in her answers, whereas you felt you had been evasive. And actually, you did describe when, when we spoke back in 2017, you described to me that you felt like a rabbit caught in headlights. She's sort yeah. of making a virtue out of her honesty. A campaign source has said her refusal to put up a pretense in order to win votes was a sign of integrity. Did you feel no. that you had to compromise either your faith or your sort of politics during that those sort of rounds of media interviews that you were doing in the run-up to that election? And do you, do you reflect on how you dealt with it and regret anything? Yeah, I, mean, I think all else is being complacent and not preparing for it and understanding you've got to take people on a journey. And so, yes, I was a rabbit in the headlights. But now that I'm sort of roadkill, animated roadkill, I'm, you know, fully liberated. But Kate's not a rabbit in the headlights. She's like a massive big bison stood in, staring down the traffic saying, come and get me. And even, even if you really don't like anything that she's saying, she's been incredibly honest. And I suppose her case would be now, I have just answered truthfully the most difficult question you could ever ask me. So when you ask me about tax and spending and other policies, you can probably trust me then, can't you? And I think that's a really, if people can demonstrate their honesty under the most pressure, you can probably trust them under less. And I think, you know, so her character is very, very clear. And it all depends. Do the SNP want to pick a poorer leader because they can't get their head around culture war? Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you what your advice for Forbes would be through this period, but actually it seems like you wish that you'd followed her playbook a bit more. Uh, I wonder if you would mind just to close our interview reflecting on how you might have done things differently back then. Well, I think so. First of all, actually, when I'm talking about these issues now, I try and take people on a journey. I'm not sure you have the time when you're running for leadership or whether you are a leader to do that. Certainly I didn't as leader of a what was then a much smaller party after we'd been shellacked at the 2015 general election. So if I hear people expressing the views that Kate expressed, and I don't think there's any kind of, you know, theological underpinning to them, my assumption is that they're a bigot. Okay. So I completely understand where people are coming from. So you have to take people on a journey that what this, all this stuff about identity and the things that we take, take has been so precious in this life. They're so puny against the backdrop of, of an eternity and an almighty. So I tend to do things like this. I will say, look, let's just for a thought experiment, pretend for a moment, suppose for a moment there is a God and let's assume they are almighty and perfect and that you and me are not. 
in which case that God is not going to just affirm all the things you already think. If they do, Dawkins is right about that God. They're a delusion. You've made them up to suit yourself. If there's a real God of that sort, they would disturb you and they would contradict you. And so if the things that Kate Forbes says disturbs you and contradicts you, you can be sure they disturb and contradict her and me too. It might be a clue. That's because we've encountered the real one. Well, I mean, that's a very articulate answer, but these things may not feel puny for those who have married their gay partner or they've had a child out, out, out of wedlock, which is really the sort of comes down to the brass tacks of it. Yeah. So that, uh, when I say it's puny, all of all of our individual, God tells us, the Bible tells us that every hair of our head is numbered and I've got less and less, but I'm making God's job easier. In other words, we are of intimate massive significance to him, huge significance. So when I say these things are puny, I'm talking about the things that we are bogged down with in our lives, and they are massively important to us. My relationships are important to me. All those sort of things, they're important. I don't denigrate people's different identities, relationships, and all the rest of it. But I am saying that they are all encompassing to us here and now. If what the Bible says is true, they are puny by comparison to the, they, they matter to him and they're puny at the same time by comparison. And just lastly, how do you think um, Forbes will will fare, you know, judging by how your own experience went? And also, do you think she will bow to pressure from her party in the end? I think you said that you felt a bit under pressure to start answering those questions about gay sex being sinful differently during your media rounds. I've no idea, really, as to how she will fare. I think there's a reasonable chance that having been direct up front early on, she wins the right to say, I've answered all that. I want to talk about independence. I want to talk about the health service. I want to talk about the economy. So she might get that right. Some people will just write her off now. But I think that if you are unafraid of defeat because you want to do the right thing, you're in a very secure place, uh, a very liberated place. And so I pray that she has peace of where that she's at and that she gets a fair hearing now. And if she wins, she wins. If she loses, she loses. But uh, no one can claim that she's pretended to be anything that she's not. And that's a thing that probably all politicians, whatever their background and beliefs, ought to aspire to. Integrity is a, a massively, massively rare quality amongst those of us who seek to lead, and she's demonstrated it. Thank you so much, Tim Farron. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. After the break, we'll have Ben Walker back to answer all your burning polling questions. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. Subscribe to the New Statesman from just a pound a week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Ben. 
All right, then. We've discussed the SNP already. We did have a lot of questions for you on that, but I think you gave us a very comprehensive answer in the first section. So let's move on to a few other newsy topics. Some news this week was the government might be willing to be more generous to nurses than other workers striking for pay rises. I was interested in this because I think it suggests that the government thinks if it can give nurses what they want, then it's got the strike that's most exercising the public under control. Can you tell us a bit about where we're at? What's the latest public opinion on strikers? And is there a big discrepancy between how the public feels about nurses and other workers? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. The thing with nurses, the thing with ambulance workers, junior doctors, whatever they are, is that they are the group Brits have most sympathy with. Rail workers, RMT workers, Brits aren't that favourable, to tell you the truth. When it came to strikes by then, they were actually quite split, which was a development once upon a time. And the iota of strike threats from the RMT and co, like saying 2013, would not have got the approval of Brits at all. For the fact last year for Brits to be split on them, even sometimes occasionally with a plurality favourability, that was a development that was pretty big. You've said it yourself. The thing with nurses is, yes, they are the group Brits have most sympathy for. And so I imagine the government thinks they can hit this on the head. They can sew up the strike sympathy feeling of public opinion by giving in to the nurses and then no one else. I I think perhaps the notion, the air, the atmosphere, the mood music of Britain facing more strikes, teachers' strikes, more trouble at the railways is nevertheless going to just continue to feed the narrative anyway. I don't think giving in on one will nip the public opinion problem in the bud. I think you've got a lot more to do here because... We have developed. And here's a perfect example for this. Teachers is a group Brits don't have as much sympathy for, but they have an increasing level of sympathy. So 2013, think back to them. This is when we started having some pretty intense strikes. Government cuts were starting to bite, be felt, and as a consequence, the unions were responding. Most Brits did not like the idea of teachers striking. I can't remember the margins, but I think it was like a 10 to 15 point lead against the teachers going out on strike. Now, we have a 10 to 15 point lead in support of teachers going out on strike. That's how much we've shifted. We don't realise that over the past 10 years, we've had the same type of government. We've had, of course, 13 years of conservative rule, even though it was the coalition back then. We have shifted in terms of public opinion by quite a marked margin, particularly when it comes to strikes. Mm, That's interesting. So even though opinions are varied according to sector, there is still a greater level of, of sympathy than there has been in the past, even for those workers who perhaps have garnered less sympathy in the past. Exactly. Mick Lynch is perhaps the figure we like to revere. We see a lot of him in social media. He's a good performer, but he doesn't exactly acquire that much favourability. I would say around only around about 25 to 35 percent of Britons have a favourable view of him. And then around about 30 to 40 percent don't. The rest, around 30 percent of Britons, don't have a clue, don't really care. The thing with Mick Lynch is perhaps if you really want the best cut, for strikes and working rights, you perhaps need someone from the teaching union or the nurses or the doctors. Because while Mick Lynch is a great performer, he is leading a union and an effort that is actually dividing the public. The thing with the rail strikes is that though, of course, they were the first out the door, they are still one of the arenas which splits public opinion. Right, okay. And on to the next topic. Rishi Sunak was supposed to be on the verge of some kind of breakthrough on the Northern Ireland Protocol this week, but the usual divisions in the Tory party are rearing up and we haven't heard any type of breakthrough yet. How does the public think Brexit is going and whose responsibility do they feel it is to sort it out? 
Yeah. I thought you were going to ask me for a minute about how the public feel about the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which <laughs> my answer would be they don't have a clue. And to tell you the truth, mainland UK attitudes towards Northern Ireland are pretty quite dismissive to tell yes. you the truth. It's really quite poor. When you ask Britons, do you mind if Northern Ireland joins with the Republic or goes independent? Most Brits, to tell you the truth, aren't that bothered, which is quite remarkable, but a little bit depressing, but we'll leave that by the by. When it comes to Brexit, people have become quite apathetic. They've become quite indifferent to it all. And here's a few things. You probably see this YouGov tracker, which pops up quite a lot on social media. It trends quite well. And it shows, it asks the question, do you think Brexit, the decision to vote to leave, the decision to leave was the right one or the wrong one? And you're seeing increasing numbers. You're seeing close to 50 plus percent, sometimes as high as 60 percent now say Brexit was the wrong decision. And the number who were saying right has definitely fallen. What you're seeing, though, is not a huge chunk of Leave voters now saying it was wrong. What you're saying is Leave voters are now going from it was the right decision to I don't know. What's happening in the Brexit sector of public opinion is Leave voters are losing all faith in politics. It's worth bearing in mind this data point that always astounds me. Ipsos, formerly Ipsos Mori, used to do turnout. They tried to gauge who comes out at election time, right? And in 2017 and 2019, more Remain voters turned out at the polling station than Leave voters. Leave voters since 2016 have not voted in as great a number as Remain voters have. Let's just remember that the electorate who come out, the electorate who came out to bring give Boris Johnson the majority was majority Remain. Just Bear that in mind, even though, of course, he owned the Leave voting coalition. The thing with Leave voters is they're staying at home. They're losing faith in politics. And so when it comes to opinion polls like these, they're not exactly enthused. They're not exactly bothered and they're not turning out at elections as a consequence. So you see some hypothetical polls. Would you vote to rejoin? And you see some big numbers for rejoining. But I'd always add a serious health warning on that because it's making an assumption on who would turn out right now. And who's enthused by politics right now? Because your stereotypical supporter of the Conservatives is not enthused with politics right now. This is the thing, you know, when you look at polls at the moment, always bear in mind, they are a snapshot of the here and now. Who is motivated here and now as opposed to who will be motivated in the campaign? I always say this to everyone who's a really enthusiastic supporter of Remain. Just hold your nerve. Just don't get too excited yet. Wait until we get to a situation where there is a referendum campaign and you will see that leave base, that leave vote, it's motivated suddenly to come out. And they, they the media campaign will get them moving, will get them interested in politics again. Sure, there might be some conversions. Sure, probably re- rejoin might win, probably win. But don't bank on it. Don't bank on it on these numbers because we live in an era of apathy and that apathy is disproportionately felt among leavers. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks, Ben. And at PMQs yesterday, Keir Starmer welcomed the new MP for West Lancashire, Ashley Dalton, to the Commons. So she won a by-election a couple of weeks ago. We never actually discussed it on the pod. Can you tell us what that result showed and didn't show and also how your model on State of the Nation forecasted for such an outcome? This is your chance to show off, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for listeners who for some reason aren't active online, Britain Predicts is the new statesman state of the nation model, which myself and a few others have been building. It's only me now. I'm the only one left now. Who, who's it's been broken it. many it's just, others. It has actually. <laughs> you don't realise. <laughs> um, but anyway, what it does, it takes all the polls and tries to predict what an election will be if an election was held now. 
Okay, right now we're predicting some a hefty Labour majority. A few months ago, it was Labour 500 seats, which would be silly in an election. That's not going to happen. But again, bear in mind, what are the polls showing you? They're showing you what's happening now. And what's happening now is Tory voters are staying at home and they aren't motivated by election because there isn't a campaign to motivate them. Okay, so always bear that in mind when you look at the polls. This isn't going to be the final product. Anyway, West Lancashire, for those who don't know it, it's north of Liverpool, south of Preston. It's near Southport, which is where our late colleague Patrick Maguire is from. And to tell you the truth, it should be Red Wall. However, because Labour has a really decent favourability score among Scousers, put bluntly, and given West Lanks, Ormskirk, Scale, Mersdale, also known as SCEM, which isn't exactly the most attractive name out there. <laughs> Given it's seen as like a constituency, dormitory towns for Scousers, you know, commuting into Preston, Southport, Liverpool, even though the rail lines are utter state, it held firm for Labour, even though on paper in 2019 it shouldn't have. Anyway, talking a little bit too much here. Labour held it pretty comfortably, 62% of the vote, Tories 25%, and the Britain Predicts model predicted 62% of the vote. Tories 25%. We did quite well. However, while I'm going to bask in the glory and enjoy this, I don't want to say it's a fluke, but I do want to say, look, by-elections are meant to throw up different results. They're meant to throw up, you know, a lot more increased Tory levels of apathy or whatever. What we're seeing really, and I'm really glad to see, is that an aggregate of the polls, not single polls, not specific polls, but an aggregate of the polls, our tracker, Britain predicts models and trackers, is that we're getting it bang on. And we're getting the models bang on public opinion. If you look at trackers now, you can rest assured that you're seeing a pretty accurate impression of public opinion. Okay, but again, remember, this is the here and now. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. At the moment, if an election was held today, it'll be Labour 424 seats, Tories 138. That would be their worst result in modern history, at least. But that doesn't factor for tactical voting, which we know is going to happen. And it doesn't factor for obviously an election campaign. And if you start to factor for that, and I've had a go, I've been doing it for a few months, I've tried to factor for, here's what would happen if, you know, the Tory base was motivated to come out. Here's what would happen if tactical voting was about as prevalent as 97. Right now, again, we predict Labour 424, Tories 138. It'll be closer to Labour 370, 360 right now, if you factored for a campaign coming in. And that's probably closer to Taylor Jeff. I don't want to make predictions for the next election, but if nothing changes, if Labour still holds its lead on the economy, if Starmer leads Sunak on favourability and the public's preference for PM, if nothing like that changes, if the fundamentals aren't different, I dare say the next election will be Labour 370 and the Tories won something. And the Lib Dems, well, they're going to have a good election anyway. They're on the move in certain parts of Blue Wall, England. They definitely want to watch, which we will see in May. And I can't wait to show you those numbers, but that's a lot of work for Britain Predicts. And it, it will appear on the State of the Nation website. In the future. Yes, that's. I was going to ask you, where can our listeners find it if they haven't seen it before? Well, you can go to sotn.newstatesman.com. Click it, wait for it to load. It can be a bit slow at times, but it will come up and you'll be able to see it there. And uh, you can find your own constituency. You can find the MPs that will probably lose as well. And you can see the polls, not to mention as well, the polls I like to mention. Right now, we're, of course, on Labour 47, 46%, Tories 26% as well, a 20-point lead. So Rishi Sunak came in when Labour had a 25, 30-point lead. He's brought that down to a very tight 20-point Labour lead. That's not much, really, is it? But that's where we are now with the polls. 
Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ben. That was a really good whip through some of our questions that we've had from listeners over the past couple of weeks. Thanks to all our listeners as well for their questions for Ben. And if you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleague Ben Walker and our guest, Tim Farron. We'll be back on Monday when we'll be discussing discontent among parliamentary staff. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.